All right, why don't we go ahead and uh, why don't we go ahead and get started with our lesson tonight? And uh, so, as many of you know, then we're going to be walking through this year. I don't I don't know how long it will take us, but I'm not in a hurry to go anywhere. So uh, we'll we'll take as long as it we need to 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 walk through uh, our confession of faith. I just thought actually I got the idea from from Bobby um, uh, to uh, to go through this and I just thought what a great idea um, so that we can really dig into it and make sure that we understand uh, you know more fully and thoroughly um, this confession of faith what what we believe and and why we're why we're holding to it um, so I want to start with a little bit of a you know introduction uh, introduction and background to uh, the 1646 uh, First London Baptist Confession of Faith. And of course, just the intro itself gives you some insight, right? When you, when you first read it, uh, that, that uh, first paragraph um, says, a confession of faith of seven congregations or churches of Christ in London, which are commonly but unjustly called Anabaptist published for the vindication of the truth and information of the ignorant. Likewise, for the taking off those aspersions, those aspersions, which are frequently, both in pulpit and print, unjustly cast upon them. Printed at London, Anno 1646. And of course, Anno being the abbreviation for Anno Domini in the year of our Lord uh, 1646. So you've got seven congregations uh, that came together in London and uh, they say, but unjustly, um, which are commonly, but unjustly called Anabaptist. And, um, and so, first of all, you've got um, two predominant Baptist groups in London, in England, throughout England. Um, you've got the General Baptists and the Particular Baptists. And the General Baptists were basically your Arminian Baptist churches. Your Particular Baptists, which is what the 1646 uh, was, they were the ones that wrote it. The Particular Baptists were basically what we would call today Reformed Baptists. They held to a particular atonement. That's where it came from that Christ died for a particular people. And so they refer to themselves as particular Baptists. They were essentially Calvinist, and they were Baptistic. But quite often, both of these groups, both of these groups were often lumped in with the Anabaptists, which was a different group. They were lumped in with the Anabaptists by the Presbyterians um, and the Church of England. And... Uh, just so you understand why we reference both of those, Presbyterians essentially are in Scotland at this time in world history and this time in uh, English history. Uh, the Presbyterians are in Scotland, uh, and uh, that church is you know started by John Knox. The Church of England is what is in the South. Um, basically, the, the Church of England is started when, uh, under King Henry VIII, they break away from the Roman Catholic Church, and they start the Church of England. King Henry VIII becomes the head of the Church of England. And so there's, there's not much difference in terms of your theology. Um, uh, well, I, I, let me rephrase that. Initially, there was not much difference. They simply broke away. Um, but in time, uh, they do uh, develop a more Protestant view, um, but they still baptize infants. Um, a lot of their liturgy still looks very Catholic um, in terms of the way that they do worship. Um, but the Anabaptists are an offshoot of the Protestant Reformation that took place in, in Switzerland under Ulrich Zwingli. So Zwingli is the, the guy who leads the Reformation in Switzerland. And the Anabaptists basically come out of that. They... They embraced the teachings of Zwingli. They embraced the teachings of the Reformers, but they really carry them to extreme. 
And so for that reason, oftentimes the Anabaptists are referred to as the radical reformers. Um, and they were considered to be radical by different groups for different reasons. Uh, the first was that obviously they rejected infant baptism. And of course, all Baptists do. Um, but remember that the reformers all held to infant baptism, right? You got Calvin, you got Luther, you got Knox. Um, and so the Anabaptists rejected infant um, baptism. And so that right there puts them at odds with the Catholics, the Presbyterians, and the Lutherans, and the Church of England, right? So they're, they're, like, they're like a minority group because they reject infant baptism. Um, but they even, they even end up alienating themselves from a lot of Baptist groups like the General Baptists and the particular Baptists because they also denied, the Anabaptists denied the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. Right? They, they saw no distinction. They denied that distinction. When we talk about that distinction, um, the, the visible church is, is what we see right? when we gather for church. When we gather on Sunday morning um, or if you've got a building, but it, it's what you see. It's the people who are there. That is the gathered church. It's the visible church. Um, but not everybody there is saved. Right? Not everyone who's a part of the visible church are, are true believers. And so we talk about the invisible church, um, sometimes referred to as the universal church. The visible church is oftentimes referred to as the local church, the visible church or the local church. And then you've got the invisible church or the universal church. And that is the true church of God comprised only of believers throughout the world and throughout all ages. Right? That is the true church those who are actually saved and have placed faith in christ is the true church the invisible church and so the invisible church exists within the visible church and um and so this that is that is classic historic um protestant theology uh um and uh the anabaptists argued that no there's there is only one church there should only be one church and that is those who are who make a profession of faith and are baptized, those are the only ones who should be in the church. And so there is only one church, and there isn't this distinction between visible and invisible. Um, and so that alienated them even further from were they their other. Yes, yeah. If you're if you're baptized, you're saved, right? Now, they were Baptists, so you could only be baptized based on a profession of faith. But you make that profession of faith, you're baptized, you're saved, that's it, right? So there's no distinction for them. Um, they also tended to be somewhat revolutionary. Um, in other words, they took, again, that aspect of the Protestant Reformation, where we are, we are throwing off the, the bonds of the Roman Catholic Church and, uh, you know, all of these... These, these reformers are, are breaking out. They're starting their own churches, right? Uh, Luther, the, the Lutheran church begins. You've got Knox who goes back, starts a Presbyterian church. You've got um, uh, John Calvin who goes to Geneva and they turn that entire city uh, into, you know, basically a reformed uh, church. Everyone there goes to the same church. They all hold the same theology. And so there was a group in 1535 of Anabaptists who attempted to do something similar that Calvin did, although Calvin didn't use violence, right? Calvin was invited um, to, to go to Geneva and to help bring the Reformation to Geneva. But there was a group of Anabaptists in 1535 who basically kicked out the city council of the city of Munster, Germany, and took over the city. They basically, you know, booted out all the church councilmen and they took over the city and they were going to, by force, although it wasn't military force, Anabaptists also tended to be pacifists. Um, but nonetheless, they sort of just shoved them out. We're taking over. We're going to turn this into an Anabaptist city where everybody here is an Anabaptist. We all hold the same theology. We all go to the same church. Yes, Jack. Well, that's what I mean. They didn't use weapons. 
But nonetheless, they basically just said, we're taking over. We're taking over the city council. We're taking over the city. And they, you know, were able to push them out and take over. Um, However, the Catholic Bishop of Munster returned at the head of a military force. And he did use force to take back over the city of Munster and to shove out all of the Anabaptists uh, from the city of, of Munster. Uh, Munster, Germany. Um, so they tended to be somewhat revolutionary in their thinking, but they were also pacifists. Um, also, um, it was rumored. So that, so okay. So this is where. Let me pause and say this is where the particular Baptists who wrote uh, this confession of faith, when they say which are commonly but unjustly called Anabaptists, they wanted to set the record straight. We are not Anabaptists. We don't hold to these crazy radical views that these Anabaptists hold to. And so we want to write a statement of faith uh, to make that very clear. But the other part of that, you'll notice uh, toward the end, it says... Um, published for the vindication of the truth and information of the ignorant, likewise for the taking off of those aspersions which are frequently, both in pulpit and in print, unjustly cast upon them. It was also rumored among Anabaptist churches and denominations, so Presbyterians, Lutherans. Of course, Lutherans were mostly on the continent, but Presbyterians and the Church of England it was rumored that these Baptists, when they do their immersion baptismal ceremonies, they do it in the nude. Right? Yeah. These, they, they, are, they are an immoral bunch, right? They go out into the woods and they find a lake or a river and they, they, they do this whole immersion thing. Because you know, how else do you dunk somebody underwater, right? I mean, you got to take their clothes off. Um, so that was, and it was actually put in print. I mean, there, there was articles that were published that this is how these, these Baptists would, um, behave. So by, by the year 1646, the particular Baptists obviously felt it, um, important and necessary to, to state what they believe and to distinguish themselves from both the Anabaptists but they also want to distinguish themselves from the general Baptists, right? We, we, we hold to um, sovereign grace theology. I mean, they held to Calvinistic views that were held by uh, the Church of England, that were held by the Presbyterian Church, that were held by the Lutherans. So they wanted to distinguish themselves from the Anabaptists um, as well. Now, particular Baptists... Interestingly enough, is it because most of your Baptist denominations um, can actually trace their roots back to the Anabaptists, um, except for the particular Baptists. The particular Baptists actually came out of the separatist movement in the 16th and 17th century. And what the separatist movement was, that takes place in England, and these are individuals who leave the Church of England they don't, they don't reject their theology. They simply reject their form of church polity. In other words, they don't believe in a state-run church. Uh, the, the separatists believe that Christians should be able to gather together and to form their own church, much like we did, right? They should be able to gather and form their own church. The Church of England said, you can't do that. Right? You cannot have a church that has not been approved by Parliament and Crown. And at that point, there was only two in England, right? The Presbyterian Church, they were allowed, because they had had already fought their war, the the Scots and the English. I mean, they weren't going to do that anymore. Scots want to have the Presbyterian Church, fine. We'll recognize that, right? Their theology isn't much different from the Church of England, and it really isn't. The, The biggest difference between the Church of England and the Presbyterians is really their form of church polity. Uh, the Church of England has an Episcopal form of church polity where the, obviously the Presbyterian Church has a Presbyterian form. And by Episcopal, um, and uh, yes, that means the Episcopal Church has that as well. Um, the Episcopal Church is the American version of the Anglican Church in England. Um, 
but you're talking about Catholics and the Episcopal Church and the Church of England, and that's where you have one person who oversees a, a group of people, and there's always just one person. So, so at at the bottom in the Church of England, for example, you've got the the priest. One priest oversees a parish, right? And then above the priest, you then have the um, uh, the bishops. I, I think that's what's next. You've got the you've got the bishops. And you've got one bishop who oversees several priests. And then above the bishop, you've got the, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he, he oversees all the other bishops. And then above the Archbishop of Canterbury is the King of England or the Queen of England. Catholic Church is very much the same. Um, I think they may have one or two other um, levels in there. But you have one person that oversees where in the Presbyterian church, you always have a group of people. So within the church, you've got the elders within a church that oversees the church, not one person, but the elders. And then the teaching elder in the Presbyterian church, you've got one teaching elder. The other elders are, are called ruling elders. They tend to be the lay elders. They're men who have jobs. And you've got the teaching elders, the one who's trained and ordained. Um, and then all of the teaching elders from a region of churches together is called the, the presbytery. So within the local church, they call that the session. The teaching elder from all of the a group of churches gathered together, that's the presbytery, and they oversee a group of churches in their area. And then once a year, they all get together at what's called the general assembly, and then that is what oversees the entire. So the big difference between Anglican Church, Presbyterian Church is, is really their polity. So the separatists, when they broke away from the Church of England, it wasn't really over uh, doctrinal matters um, except those doctrines that pertain to ecclesiology. They believed that a group of Christians should be able to just go out and form their own church. And, of course, the Church of England said that that absolutely cannot uh, be. And so the separatists were greatly persecuted under Queen Elizabeth I, and many of them ended up fleeing to the continent, to Holland. And uh, the other half of them, many of them fled to North America, to Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts, hence the pilgrims. Many of them were separatists, um, fleeing from persecution um, thus, the 1644 and the 1646 London Confession borrows much from the, six, the 1596 English Separatist Confession. And I did go online and I found it and read it. And if you read the 1596 English Separatist Confession, there's, you'll, you'll, you'll notice a lot of similarity between that confession and the 1644 and 1646 London Baptist um, Confession of Faith because the particular Baptists have their origins from the separatists. So the separatists break away from the, English, the Church of England. They are still paedo-baptists, but then you have those within the separatist movement who find disagreement with this whole infant baptism thing, and they hold to believer's baptism, but they're still holding to um, Calvinistic theology with regards to salvation, and so they end up becoming the particular Baptist in England. Okay, so a little bit on the, the 1689 uh, Baptist Confession. So what, what is that, and then why are we not going to hold to that? Well, first of all, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith was written as a way of appeasing the crown of England and appeasing Parliament because under King Charles II, persecution was very severe uh, to those separatists or as they were also called uh, by Parliament and the Crown, dissenters who would not simply comply. They wouldn't be a part of the Church of England. They weren't going to be a part of the, the, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And so they were, they were persecuted. Uh, in fact, the law that was passed was the Conventicle Act of 1664. The Conventicle Act of 1664 forbade anyone, by law, forbade anyone from gathering for worship 
at a service that was not approved by the Church of England. And so it was under the reign of King Charles II that John Bunyan spent a lot of time in prison um, because John Bunyan was not going to be a part of the Church of England. Um, and so he spent much time in prison. And so these dissenters, as they were called, needed to show some sort of doctrinal unity with the Presbyterians and with the Church of England. Hence, they gather um, in 1677. I'm not sure why it took them so many years. Maybe there was a lot of back and forth. Maybe they didn't meet for lengthy periods of time. Maybe there was lengthy breaks in between. But they first gathered in 1677, and they literally began editing the Westminster Confession of Faith. Right? The Westminster Confession of Faith is the confession for the Presbyterian Church. They took it as their starting document, and they worked their way through it, and they began making changes to it. And the whole idea was to be able to present their statement of faith to the Parliament and say, look, we're not much different than the Presbyterians. Right? So you don't have to persecute us. I mean, most of what they believe is what we believe, and so we're really in the same group um, altogether. So, so the 1689 um, borrows heavily from the Westminster. The 1644-1646 borrows heavily from the Separatist um, Confession of Faith. Uh, because again, why reinvent the wheel? Right. I mean, we're doing the same thing. We started this church. We're just adopting the 1646. Right. Um, it's a good confession. It uh, withstood the test of time. Um, you know, why, why reinvent the wheel when you know that men, brilliant men, good men, godly men have wrestled through all of this uh, before? So then why not the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith? Um, because there are at least four points in it that um, I'm in disagreement on. Um, now, some churches, some churches will adopt this confession of faith, and then they'll just, you know, on their website or in their governing documents, they'll put an asterisk here or there, and then offer a, offer a footnote or an explanation as to why they disagree with this point and what is their point of disagreement. But but why do that? I mean, why not just adopt a confession that we can say, look, we agree with all of it um, that is in here. And so the four points, I just want to point them out real quick, is um, in the, uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, uh, chapter 7 talks about a covenant of grace that is established um, with the, uh, the fall of Adam and Eve. God curses uh, the serpent, and in the cursing of the serpent, the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15 where God promises to send a Redeemer, they refer to that, and so does the Westminster Confession, they refer to that as a covenant of grace that God established. Now, I don't disagree that it is clearly a solemn promise that God does fulfill. Um, everything after that, everything after Genesis 3.15, from Genesis 3.15, you know, all the way to the end of the Bible, of redemptive history is all about God keeping that promise of Genesis 3.15 and fulfilling it uh, to the very end. But the text simply does not call it a covenant. Nowhere does the Bible ever refer to what happens in Genesis 3.15 as a covenant. And I try to be careful never to speak where the Bible itself doesn't speak. Um, the other concern is um, in chapter 19, uh, they, um, they make this um, what I believe to be an artificial uh, distinction between uh, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. Um, and and you'll, hear, you'll hear Presbyterians you know, use that terminology a lot. Um, although it's extremely debated, what is the moral law what is the ceremonial law and uh, they'll debate that amongst themselves and, and and when it's convenient you know or at least it appears that way it appears that when it's convenient well this is a part of the moral law so you have to do it or well we don't like that so it's a part of the ceremonial law and it's no longer binding the bottom line is the, the bible itself doesn't make that distinction and so there again 
trying to be careful not to speak where God hasn't spoken, you don't find that distinction in the Old Testament. You don't find that distinction even within rabbinic literature uh, because the understanding of the Jewish people in the Old Testament is that any law given by God is a moral law because it comes from God. If God says, thou shall not, whatever it is, it's a moral law because it comes from uh, God. So I disagree with that distinction. Um, chapter 22, uh, also the uh, London Baptist Confession is strongly Sabbatarian um, in that you know you just you cease to do any kind of work. It's a sin to do any kind of work. It's a sin to cause anyone else to do any kind of work. And they specifically state that the New Testament uh, changes the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Now, we refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day, right? Um, but to say that, that the Sabbath was changed and that now Sunday is the new Sabbath, you don't find that in the Bible either. I think that's a stretch. I think they're reading into the text more than is there. Yes, the church began gathering for worship on the first day of the week um, and uh, for the breaking of bread on the first day of the week. Uh, it is the Lord's Day. I think that is a better Baptist terminology that is used to talk about what we do on Sunday. Um, but we don't see that the Sabbath is changed uh, over. Is that where the Seventh-day Adventist came from? Yes, yes. And then lastly, chapter 26... Um, they specifically state that they believe the Antichrist, spoken of in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses three to nine, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is the Pope. Uh, the Pope is the Antichrist. Now, I agree that he's an Antichrist, um, but I don't know that he is the Antichrist uh, that is the man of lawlessness that's going to be released and wreak havoc on the church. Um, you know, I could be wrong, but I doubt it. It made sense in that day and age, historically, in the 1600s, uh, the Pope was extremely powerful in the Middle Ages, um, 1500s, 1600s, more powerful than kings even in many, in many situations. Um, but today, quite honestly, I mean, who listens to the Pope? Um, now you've got with the, the, the most recent Pope and all that he is doing, uh, for the first time you've got bishops and cardinals that are publicly denouncing some of this some of the things that he's doing and saying that he has just lost his mind and he's going to destroy the church um so that's sort of the background then to the the 1646 and why um we're holding to that one and not the 1689 because the 1689 is more popular um but i just think there's 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 too many things wrong with it it's a good confession but there are too many points of disagreements there. All right, so tonight... Can I ask a question just super yeah. fast? Just so I can get it straight in my head. So the 1646 London Baptist Confession was put together by seven churches. Yes. That were not necessarily connected with those who did the 1689. No. Okay. No. Just want to make sure I didn't realize that. Until, okay. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. They are they not... They were doing the, it more for... 1689 was more for political reasons. Yes. Okay. Yes. Either poor Baptists were just... Yep, these were were completely different Baptist groups uh, that wrote them. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, particularly... Right. Yeah, particularly the you know the particular Baptists being lumped in with the Anabaptists, they really, really did not like that, um, and they wanted to be clear that we are not Anabaptists, and they wanted to be clear that they were distinguishing themselves from the General Baptists as well. So what does Anna mean? Oh, it uh, it means to 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 do over, and so the Anabaptists they were called that because you know they were rebaptizing those who were coming out of. You know the uh, uh, the Reformation. If they had been baptized as an infant, they were being rebaptized, and so it was not a term of endearment. Uh, you know the reformers labeled them that the the Anabaptists, those rebaptizers. Um, yeah, A N A Anabaptist, um, also known as the radical radical reformers. 
All right, so we're just going to look at um, Article 1, God. And, uh, and first of all, I want to point out that when you look at our, um, the way it's posted on our, on our website, you know, there, there's, the, there's a subtitle, right, for each of these categories. That's not in the original. Um, I actually put those there myself. I looked around at other churches that, that used the 1689, and there are different versions. Um, and uh, I, I looked at a few, and I looked at their subtitles. I wasn't crazy about the way they titled some of the paragraphs. Um, and so I just want you just to know that, that those titles aren't original. But I thought it would make it easier uh, you know, in the future if you want to go back and try to find a paragraph that talks about a particular point. The original 1644 and 1646 are just numbered. One, two, three, four, five. They don't tell you uh, the content of each paragraph. And so I thought the subtitles would help. And so this first one is really about God. And so that's, that's what I, I labeled it as. And then, you know, if you read our, the second one, I labeled the Trinity. The third one, God's sovereignty. The fourth one, the fall of man because that's really the, the main point of those paragraphs, or so I understand them as I read them. All right, so let me just read it, and then um, basically I'm just going to kind of, um, and I'm really using mostly the references that they give. Um, I like the way they wrote the references in there. You'll notice that they're not in biblical order. Um, you know, the, uh, the rep- and the references are original. Those are their references, um, but like with this one at the end, they have 1 Corinthians, and they have Isaiah, then they have Exodus, then they have 1 Timothy, because it actually goes with how it's written. Um, now, you have to kind of figure that out on your own, but as you start to look at each phrase, and then you start looking at the various passages, they put the passages in there to go with the, uh, with the way the paragraph is written. And so, the first paragraph says, The Lord our God is but one God whose subsistence is in himself, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is in himself most holy, every way infinite in greatness, wisdom, power, love, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, who giveth being, moving, and preservation to all creatures. And so I just want to take this one phrase at a time. And so the first thing that uh, the 1646 states is the Lord our God is but one God. And what they are citing for those is a two, actually, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. First Corinthians eight six is uh, the first citation, which says, "Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." Notice the similar language. Paul is doing that on purpose. Right? Because he says, we have one God. But then he mentions the Father and he mentions the Son. But notice the similar language. The Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Right? He's saying it's the same God. Not the same person. Right? There are three persons that exist as one God. But... Paul is making it very clear that there is only one God. Uh, they also cite Isaiah 44, 6 and 46, 9. Isaiah 44, 6, one verse. Good verse, though. Thus says the Lord the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, 
and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. You know, these are the kind of verses that I love to take Mormons to when I've had a few opportunities to talk to them. Um, because you can use their own Bible. You, you know, let me... Uh, I did. 46.9 Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What's it? Well, this this particular this was I mean it's the one in Baptist confession, and it includes all the scripture, so either it's wrong or something because it says here Isaiah forty six nine those who fashion engraved image are all them futile, and the precious things are no profit even their own witnesses fail to see or not. Oh, it has the actual scripture citation. So that they will be put to shame. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure about it. Yeah, not where not sure where you. Where you got that then? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah, so these are great, great verses to take your uh, your Mormon neighbors to who want to argue that you know there are other gods and that you know if you're a good Mormon, someday you're going to be the god of your own world, your own universe. But here, Scripture says, besides me, God says, besides me, there is no god. Um, I've actually taken, I, I, I remember once um, taking a Mormon to these verses, and he was young, uh, but when I read them to him, he said to me, I didn't realize those verses were in the Bible. <laughs> I said, well, how do you explain that? And he said, I don't know. I'll have to get back with you. He never came back. Uh, never saw him again. Um, but it, Yeah. <laughs> right. They're really confident people, the ones I met. I'm not saying it's a, a good confidence. No. So, no. But, um, right. I was surprised at how. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about having a God complex. Um, yes. They're yeah. worshiping their idolizing themselves, really. Is yeah. What it boils down to. Right. So, they're all wanting to be Melchizedek. Yeah. So, so there is, there's only one God, and, uh, and, and this is important because there's even a lot of Christians who will grow up in the Christian church and, and, and not get this right, right? There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but there are not three gods. Each one is God in and of himself because he is a part of the Godhead, right? But they are three distinct persons. So Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, right? Um, they, are, they are their own unique, distinct persons, yet at the same time, they are inseparable from one another, right? They are inseparable from one another. So wherever the Father is, the Son and the Holy Spirit are there as well. Wherever the Holy Spirit is, uh, at least in spirit, the Father and the Son are there as well. Um, all three make the Godhead, and um, and no, they're not, you know, each one-third God, and it's not one God appearing uh, as God, and if, if you want a really good theological lesson on this, you can watch, you can watch, uh, uh, what is that called? Lutheran satire on the Trinity. They actually do a really good job, uh, and, it, and it's humorous. Yes, Jack. Right. Well, 
Yes. Right, omnipresent. Bobby? Well, I was going to say, because you're kind of leaking over in Article 2. Right, right, yeah. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that next week, the Trinity. Which kind of answers his question, because it says, it says, all infinite without any beginning, therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature, and being but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties. Mm -hmm. Which... That kind, of, that kind of explains it. Right, yeah. right. That yeah, yeah. We don't want to get into next week's lesson, no, but uh, just to answer your question quickly, um, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in his bodily form, is not omnipresent, right? In his bodily form. Um, and Jesus remains in bodily form. Now, by means of the Holy Spirit, he is. Because wherever the Holy Spirit is, and the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, then Christ is there as well, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Um, but in bodily form, Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, wherever that may be. All right, so there is only one God whose subsistence is in himself. Now, what does that mean? whose subsistence is in himself. Exodus 3.14 is what they cite. You all probably know what that is. What is Exodus 3.14? That's right, the burning bush, right? Moses said, who shall I say sent me? Right? They're going to want a name because they all have their Egyptian gods and they all have a name. So who's, who, who shall I say sent me? And it's, it's interesting and very telling that God says, Tell them, I am has sent you, right? Which the Hebrew name, Yahweh, that's, what that, that's where that comes from. When you look at the Hebrew text, when he says, tell them, I am, that phrase, I am, is the four consonants that make uh, the, 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 the name of God, um, Yahweh. Um, he is literally saying to Moses, I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. And this would have been very important to Moses and even to Pharaoh because among all of the gods, I mean, you look at the Greek gods, you look at the Roman gods, all the pantheon, you know, you look at the Egyptian gods, whatever their names are, they're always associated with something in creation, right? You've got the sun god, you've got Zeus, who's the god of, you know, what, lightning. I mean, you've got, they're always associated with something. Well, who does, who can God possibly compare himself or to what can God compare himself when everything comes from God, right? God cannot associate or be associated with anything in this, in creation, with any part of creation because all of creation finds its existence from God, right? Everything comes from him. And so when Moses asks him that question, he's not going to say, well, I'm the moon God or the sun God or the, you know, I, I am the one that simply exists. He is not dependent on anyone or anything outside of himself. Um, because in reality, you don't even see that with all of the gods that existed back then. You know, they all needed something from someone to continue going on and doing what they're doing. God just is. He just is. He needs nothing outside of himself. He is dependent on nothing outside of himself. And so he says to Moses, I am. I just exist. I am the self-existent one. Um, and there's a lot of comfort in that by itself, right? Because the moment a living being becomes dependent on anything outside of himself, he can be manipulated, right? He can be controlled. Because if you can control the one thing that he needs, then you can control God, right? That's the whole problem you get into, particularly with the Greek gods. I mean, they were always 
fighting against each other and going to war against because you know the other gods had something that this god needed and and then so then the people are just trying to make them happy and there's there's no comfort in that right there's comfort in knowing that god needs nothing outside of himself so he cannot be manipulated or controlled right everything is dependent on god god is dependent on nothing and on no one right there's a lot which means he's stable right he's stable he is the same god yesterday today and forever he's never going to change he's never going to be different um that's comforting because there's that when he said, I am that I am, that they would know what that meant. But that hadn't been used anywhere else in Scripture to right. that point. So how did they know that? Well, what I meant, what I meant by that is that when he, when he says to Moses, basically he's saying, tell them the existent one has sent you. Moses would have understood, you're not related to anything then, mm-hmm. you know? You're not like the God of thunder. You're not like the God of mountains. You're just the God who just exists. Um, The name, see back then, Egyptian gods, Roman gods, Greek gods, the name of the God communicated something about that God. Right? Right. Yeah. 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 It, 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 It shows his authority that he is over all the other gods um, because he's simply the God that exists. Every other God has a beginning somewhere. Not, not the God that appears to Moses. There's no beginning. But in fact, everything has its beginning in him. But everything has its beginning in him. So just by his name alone, he's saying, I am over all of these other gods that are out there um, because everything has their beginning in God. Um, And so he is whose subsistence is in himself, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. Um, They cite 1 Timothy 6.16. Somebody go ahead and just read that. uh, And I'm going to flip over to Isaiah. I'm already in Isaiah. You know, actually, I do want to go there. Um, First Timothy six sixteen, because it actually ties into the second phrase as well. Because then it goes on to say, um, the paragraph uh, who ha- who only hath immortality. Uh, which is talking about eternality, right? Dwelling in light, which no one can approach unto, who is in himself most holy. All of that is really in that 1 Timothy 6.16 passage, who alone has immortality. God alone is eternally existent. And even that alone, you know, you could... Study God and you can ponder so many attributes about God and, and they'll just blow your mind. But that one alone is mind-boggling because think of it. It means before Genesis 1, going back before Genesis 1, trillions and trillions and hundreds of trillions and hundreds of trillions of years, there was God. There was never a time when there was not God. That's, that's mind-blowing to us. And then, and then when, you get, when you get to 900 trillion years, you keep going. Another 900 trillion years, and there's God. He is just always, He has no beginning. He has always been and he always will be. That's that's mind-boggling. And that's only because he's allowed us to believe. What's that? He's allowed us to believe. Right. I mean, we believe that. We believe that. He said he can be allowed. Yeah, he gives us the ability to believe that. 
you know. Um, and, and part of that eternality is because he is self-existent. Mm-hmm. See, God can exist eternally because he's not dependent on anything. So he just is. He just is. Um, and then the text says, who alone is immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. That's talking about the holiness of God, right? I mean, even, even Moses. Moses says, I want to see your face. Remember that? And God says, nobody can see my face and live, right? I'll let you see my backside, but you can't see my face and live, Moses. Right. I mean, Isaiah doesn't get it. He, Isaiah only sees the train of his robe, right? He only sees the corner of his robe coming out of the temple, which gives you this idea that, you know, if, if Isaiah could have looked in there, you know, it was, it was filled. And here's his robe sort of tumbling out of the door of the temple. And, and even that, when Isaiah sees that, woe is me, for I am undone, yeah. right? Um, the demons, when they find themselves in the presence of Christ, fall on their knees. Don't, don't torment me, mm-hmm. right? When we find ourselves in the presence of God's holiness, it terrifies us. Uh, even Peter, right? I love that story about Peter fished all night when Jesus first meets him. You know, Jesus says, take me out. I want to preach to the people. And he does. And then he says, you know, We'll cast your net over the other side of the boat. And Peter says, you know, we fished all night, Lord, and we didn't catch anything. And he says, but because you ask, I'll do it. And he does. And right, every, like every fish in the Sea of Galilee jumps into his net. Right? And, and the text tells us that, that Peter realized, you know, you know where, who's standing in front of him to some degree. And, you know, most of us in our Western capitalistic way of thinking might have said, all right, here's the deal, Jesus. You show up once a week, we'll split the profits 50-50, right? But that, that's not what Peter, his response is, depart from me, Lord, right? Yeah, Peter's response is, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, right? He recognizes I'm standing in the presence of holiness. Um, he alone has immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Um, So we're talking about here um, when it says um, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. Another word for that is the transcendency of God. We're talking about the transcendency of God. That God cannot be fully comprehended by the human mind. He just can't. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Yeah, very comforting. Um, That God sees everything. God knows everything. Um, and so when we talk about that, we're talking about the, the, the transcendency of God. God is transcendent. He is above us. He is beyond our comprehension. Um, all that we know about God is just a smidgen of what there is to know about God. I mean, how can we fully comprehend a God that has eternally existed? That's, that's beyond our comprehension. In our world, everything has a beginning. Everything starts somewhere and nothing lasts forever. Right? Everything is going to end at some point. Um, you know, in our, in, our, in our world, in our mind, everything is dependent on something else. I mean, everything is. How can we comprehend a God that is eternal and um, not dependent on, on anything else? Um, he is eternal. Uh, they also cite Isaiah 43.15. Isaiah 43:15 says, "I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your your holy one." But when I think about the holiness of God, I mean the passage that always comes to my mind is Isaiah 6. Um, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, 
and uh, there were two seraphim who flew with with six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, in the Bible, repetition was used to emphasize things, right? That's why Jesus, you hear him say, truly, truly, I say to you, right? They would, they would use repetition to emphasize things. You see Paul doing that, Galatians chapter 1. You know, if I or an angel comes to you and gives you a gospel other than the one that I proclaim to you, let him be a curse. And then he says, and I say again, if I or anyone, even an angel, comes to you and gives you a gospel other than the one that I've given you, let him be a curse. In all of Scripture, there's only one thing that's ever elevated to the third level, and that is the holiness of God. And it's done twice. You see it in Revelation chapter 4 as well, that the elders are around the throne of the Lamb singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God, right? Um, God is, is holy. Um, uh, and there's some debate on what that holiness means, um, but I think that when it talks about God, when, it, when we talk about the holiness of God, we are saying that God is wholly devoted to his own glory. Those things that are determined to be holy in the Old Testament, when the utensils in the temple were considered holy, when the priests are considered holy, when we are a holy uh, nation unto God, when we see that word, it means that we, are, um, we have been created, established to be wholly devoted to God and to his glory. And so God is utterly devoted to his own glory. The paragraph goes on to say, every way infinite in greatness, wisdom, power, love, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Everywhere, every way infinite in Greatness. Uh, somebody read Deuteronomy 32.3. And actually, just turn there. Let me get someone else to, uh, to pick Jeremiah 10.12. And then I'm going to turn over to Exodus. Uh, I think I left Job out for a reason. I don't remember what reason. Um, but Exodus 34... All right, so I got Exodus 34. Okay, so every way infinite in greatness. Deuteronomy 32.3 says what? For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. I will proclaim the name of our Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. Wisdom and power, Jeremiah 10.12. Anybody get that one? Who made the earth by his power and what? Stretched out the earth. <laughs> Who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Right. So by his wisdom and his power, he creates all things. And then they say, in every way infinite in love, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Exodus 34 6 and 7 says, The Lord passed before him, we were just talking about this, and proclaim, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God is infinite in his love and his mercy and his grace and his long-suffering, and he is abundant in goodness and truth, who gives being, moving, and preservation to all creatures. Acts chapter 17 
This is Paul's speech at the Areopagus. Acts 17. Now they um they cite Acts 17, 28. Uh, but I think, you know, going back to 26 is helpful. So Acts 17, 26 to 28. Paul says, And he, talking about God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So he, he appoints every person to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That's amazing. From eternity past, God determined, foreordained, that you would be born in this time period. Not the Middle Ages. Not the third century, right? Having determined their periods and their boundaries. So from eternity past, God determined as well that you would be born in this country, not in Africa, on that continent, not somewhere in Europe, right? And God actively makes these choices for every single human being that's ever lived. God actively makes these choices that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. And find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. We are dependent on him. We exist because of him. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You know, another passage that comes to mind when we talk about this, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. What's fascinating about Hebrews chapter 1 is, is the author of Hebrews is talking about Christ the Son. Verse 1, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom, that is through Christ, through whom also He created the world. The world was created through Christ the Son. Verse 3, He, Christ the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Christ the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ is actively sustaining the universe, all that exists. So if God were to take a break, if God were to truly say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything today. I'm going to have a do-nothing day. Right, the, the, the stars would fall from the sky, right? The earth would cease to rotate. I mean, gravity would stop working. I mean, it, everything would just disintegrate. Um, what's that? He has set the world in order, yes. Um, but the universe is not a self-contained mechanistic universe. Um, the universe doesn't operate like um, a divine watchmaker. God didn't create the universe, wind it up, and then it just goes on its own. God is actively involved in sustaining creation, in sustaining the universe, in causing the earth to spin at its consistent speed. And if God were to... Completely take so when we when we read about God taking the the, the 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 seventh day right in creation on the seventh day it says that God rested from all of His work He rested from creating but He doesn't rest from sustaining right if He were to truly rest from all work nothing would exist um, that's amazing right and that is that is the God that we serve that is the God that we worship. Um, and that is why we give thanks to God, right? When we pray before meals, once a year at Thanksgiving, Christmas time, there is so much that we can be thankful for. The fact that we continue to exist and live and breathe and move um, is all dependent upon God. We are dependent on Him, and God is dependent on no one. So that's it. That's Article 1 of the, uh, the 1644. It's going to take. <laughs> What's that? Romans 11. Th- was that one of them too? Yes, one. Okay, read Romans 11 36. It is, for from him 
To him be the glory forever. Amen. 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 And yeah, from him and to him and through him are all things. Right? Um, Everything exists through God. Um, And so, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll eventually get to the end. If the Lord tarries, we'll get to the end of... The 1644. There are 52 of them. And, and some, some of that, some of them have more than one paragraph, and I think I'm only going to take one paragraph at a time. Um, well, well, if we don't, you will be well prepared to enter into eternity. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. All right, let's uh, let's pray. Our gracious God, heavenly Father, Lord, we um, we stand amazed by your um, by your magnitude, by your glory, by your transcendence and holiness, Lord God. Um, we are reminded of the words of the psalmist: um, "Who are we that you are mindful of us?" that you would take concern upon us, Lord God. And uh, Lord, we praise you, we worship you, we love you for, for who you are, for all that you have done. And we pray, Lord God, that these truths that we have studied tonight would just increase our worship of you, our desire to know you even more fully and to pursue holiness even more fervently. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.